Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another Ask a Silicon Valley Lawyer uh, webinar. I'm, I'm uh, very grateful to my colleague, Kate Mamiko Galam, for uh, putting all of this together uh, from the slides to the invitations uh, and to helping uh, put this panel together. And, and uh, I want to welcome uh, my good friends, Brian McAllister, uh, Brett Waters, and Nicole Hatcher. And unfortunately, Nicole's had a last minute family emergency. So while we did not intend on producing a mantle, uh, <laughs> which is a uh, very bad word in Silicon Valley and, and other places, uh, 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 we, we apologize for uh, Nicole's uh, last minute um, uh, empêchement, as we say in French. Um, but uh, uh, before we get started, I'd, I'd love to uh, introduce uh, my good friend, Silicon Valley guy, Brett Waters, who is the uh, founder of the Fourthly Accelerator and, and many Silicon Valley companies and uh, is the quintessential founder uh, and now coaches founders, Brett. Thanks, Louis. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be here this morning. So I, uh, uh, I grew up in Silicon Valley, spent my entire life in Silicon Valley, um, started and run sort of three or four companies, depending on how you count. Uh, and today I teach entrepreneurship at Stanford University and I run a startup accelerator called Fourthly. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Brett. And, and uh, Brian McAllister is one of my uh, oldest and, and, and most favorite people who uh, is a mentor to me in the law and uh, who also has uh, experience as a founder. Brian, would love for you to introduce yourself. Great. Thanks, Louie. Um, hi. So, yeah, I go back uh, quite a ways uh, in one of my other lives. I started off doing what Louie did for many years, practicing in big law firms uh, here in the Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, and Hong Kong. Um, a lot of my practice was uh, cross-border, mostly Asia, West Coast uh, deals. Then went in-house where Louie and, Louie and I met, and I ran the corporate legal group at a big public company, um, just a lot of deals and kind of a lot of cross-border stuff. And then somewhere along the way, uh, got the crazy idea that I could do a startup and went off and uh, launched a real estate tech slash data company and, um, and did that for a few years. And uh, Louie helped me with that. And uh, here we are today. I work with uh, startups, entrepreneurs, executives, and investors that support and invest in the system. Uh, thanks, Brian. And I'm going to say a word about my friend, Nicole Hatcher, uh, who's not with us. Nicole and I have practiced together for eight years, uh, first at Cooley, then at DLA Piper. And now she and uh, her partner, uh, Natasha Allen, have formed their own firm called Allen and & Hatcher. And we collaborate on, on many projects together. And uh, Nicole has a great perspective of uh, representing founders from her time at uh, Atrium as well. And, and I'm, I'm sure she would have had a lot of great things to add. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to introduce the topic and uh, why we're talking about it. Um, despite the, the pandemic out there, and I note that for those of you who are connecting from Silicon Valley, it's, uh, you, you've noticed it's apocalypse outside. It's raining ashes from uh, the fires all over the state. You can barely see uh, the sky. It's dark and foreboding. Um, so thanks for joining. We're going to try and uplift you. Um, I've noticed from the, uh, the attendee list that we've got folks here from all over the world uh, and we're so honored uh, to welcome uh, all of you uh, to our uh, topic here and and really it came up from a number of uh, issues that that have arisen you know as, as I've written a lot I think uh, difficult times are sometimes the best times to start a new company. Uh, the best time to invest is when things get tough. And so we're, for, we're seeing a lot of new companies get formed. And we came up with the idea of a two-part series about founder equity. And, and the first part, which we're going to do today, is, is how to get it right from the start. And then next week, we're going to do a follow-up session on what to do when things get gnarly. And uh, uh, we, uh, we, we think that uh, you know, this, this first uh, foundational session uh, will um, you know, set the stage. So Brian, if you want to hit the, uh, the next slide, we'll, we'll uh, skip over the disclaimers and, and the panelists and, and uh, just uh, hit the agenda. Um, Brian, we're on the... You know, I, I wanted to go back and at least give people the chance to read the disclaimers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is attorney advertising and we're not your attorneys. There we go. Um, so first off, we're going to talk about how do you split it up. Then we're going to talk about what are the different types of equity, who gets what, 
we'll, we'll try and set the stage for equity incentive plans, sometimes called uh, option plans. Some people refer to these as ESOPs or employee stock option plans. And uh, that's a dangerous word to use because it can refer to another tax-driven vehicle. So never use the word ESOP. Uh, I call them EIPs or option plans. Then we're going to talk about vesting and, and what's normal. We're going to uh, quickly cover cap tables and 49A valuations, and then uh, hopefully uh, share some great stories because uh, we've we've got some great folks here with us um, who have uh, some some uh, meaningful experience to share. Uh, and it's not just about fish tacos. Um, so if we want to go to the next slide, Brian, um, I wanted to turn it over to you. And I remember when uh, you were just kicking starting off at Local Life, and and you know we had a lot of discussions about founder equity split. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, so this is a, this is a really interesting topic. And it's as a founder, you know, other than the idea, it's the first one you run into. Um, and it, it can, it, it takes uh, a whole bunch of different pathways, depending on who the founders are. Are they long term friends went to college together, or been working together, or they did they find each other as strangers through a meetup? or one of these uh, kind of co-founder speed dating sites. Um, and that can drive how people approach it. And you have you know, different approaches. One is the, okay, it's 100% divided by how many founders, or uh, you know, flip of the coin, who should get what, or who's gonna be occupying what role. Well, I guess what I'd like to do first, you know, Brett, you've seen this as a founder multiple times, and you advise people about this. I'd really kind of like to get your take on, you know, what have you seen? What do you think works? Um, and then we can kind of play with it from there. Yeah. <clears throat> so I wish I had some sort of uh, magic answer to how to split up equity amongst a co-founding team. Um, uh, but I don't. I will say this, which is that um, you got to do this sooner rather than later. Um, founder disputes are a leading cause of startup death, right? Um, and you want to avoid founder disputes. And so even though the discussion about, you know, I think you deserve 18% and I think I deserve 62% can be a really difficult and, you know, and, and contentious discussion, you're much better off having that discussion earlier rather, rather than later. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and in some ways, I think it's almost easier when the founders don't know each other that well. Mm -hmm. You're not that worried about offending your friend or your brother or your sister or you know, whoever it is. Um, and people are nervous about, it seems like people can be very nervous about that, offending someone, but it's a lot worse to get too far down the path and then realize you need to readjust. Right. And that's gonna cause you know, right. bigger issues. Right. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll throw out there, and you can kind of go out there and Google this stuff. Um, I use a system that frankly I found online and then modified it from my own you know, needs, but ways to think about it are, you know, from the very beginning, who's going to be contributing what? Um, you know, who's got the idea? Who's, and, and by the way, ideas are important, execution's more important, so you got to kind of measure all this, but who's got the idea? Um, are there certain types of domain expertise that someone's going to contribute that, without that, you'd never get it off the ground? Um, is someone putting in cash? And then think about, okay, how much time are people spend, spending on this? Um, is everybody full-time or is someone still working and they're gonna contribute part-time? And you can kind of start figuring out a, a methodology. And I, I actually like having some sort of methodology to apply to this because it allows you to talk through things without maybe offending someone so much because you really are pointing at some sort of system that either you found or you've come up with to apply some percentages. Um, as an example, um, so we talked about ideas. Uh, is there someone who's going to be driving the funding early on, um, whether that's through their own connections or their own money? Um, domain expertise, we talked about the roles that people play, um, people that are full-time versus part-time, and what kind of responsibilities, CTO, uh, CEO, uh, marketing. What do you want to apply in terms of value to those, those sorts of things? And, and you can literally create a point system where you say, okay, from one to 10, I'm gonna apply points to these things. I'm gonna weight them. So 
maybe these, maybe the idea is so unique and so out there that it's critical um, and it's going to shake up an industry. And, and you can say that's got a higher weighting than maybe responsibilities. Um, and then what you do is you kind of start saying, all right, so which of the founders are contributing those things? And so you've now got this weighting and then you're going to give founders points for, for, for a percentage for how much they're contributing to a particular category. Anyway, you can follow this down the path where you eventually say, okay, here's how much equity is left after the, the pool we're going to set up. And, and by applying the weighting and the points, you can say, here's how much each of the founders should get. And by the way, that's probably just the beginning of the next level of negotiation, but at least it gives you a frame of reference to start talking from a way to point out a methodology as opposed to you're more important than me and just in a general sense. And um, I think people can have logical conversations around that. Um, this is also a very good time to make sure that uh, uh, title and all the IP and everything is is placed in the name of the company. Absolutely. That, you know, you don't want to, you know, so you've got a co-founding team, some people own the domain name, some people, you know, have been writing the code, some people, right? So this is the moment we want to make sure that all of that is owned by the company. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of part of what you are doing in return for your equity is putting everything in the name of the company. Um, I just wanted to jump in here and throw in some some data points. Uh, uh, as I was preparing for this webinar, I, I thought I, I should uh, uh, look at what other great founders have done. Uh, and uh, I looked up and found that and when Apple was formed, uh, uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak split the equity 45-45, but there was a third co-founder named Ron Wayne who got 10%, so he was the kingmaker. Uh, and and uh, there was never a deadlock. Uh, that's one thing that I wanna warn founders about is they often uh, you know, find a, a single other kindred spirit who uh, they become very close to as they put the company together, but it's kind of equal. And then you have these deadlock situations uh, as they're 50-50, and then how do you resolve a deadlock? Uh, one of them can, can get very upset if, if if uh, she or he thinks that the other co-founder is not putting in uh, the same amount. So um, I just want to echo what, what Brett and Brian have said about being really clear about um, what the expectations are and making the equity reflect it. And finally, making sure that there's a way to resolve um, deadlocks. Um, uh, going to, to more data points, uh, Microsoft was formed by Bill Gates and Paul Allen, and they went in 60-40 uh, on the theory that Bill ha had put in uh, more work. Um, in the case of Google, we don't know uh, what the initial equity split was. We know that at the time of the IPO, uh, Larry and Sergey were each at 15%, but uh, we suspect, or it's possible that one of them had one additional share so that uh, there was the, the deadlock issue. Um, in the case of Oracle, Larry Ellison was 60%. His uh, technical co-founder and, and real genius behind that company, Bob Miner, only had 20%, and Ed Oates had 20%. So Larry, you know, didn't 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 uh, need anybody else's consent to do anything. Uh, shocker there. Um, so uh, some some many other great data points that that I'd be happy to share. Um, after the uh, the webinar and the follow-up materials, but I, I I wanted to share. I think it's important to uh, make sure that that somebody can call the shots and and also that if that person is uh, needs to be removed, that there's a way to do that too, Brian. Yeah, it, it really, good, both of those are really good points. And I say, kind of starting with Brett's uh, comment about the IP is you, you're not just issuing stock. You're 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 going to have a either such a stock purchase agreement or some sort of grant agreement that the founders get their stock through. Um, and then as part of that, either in that agreement or a separate agreement, they should be assigning all IP to the company. And that's kind of the that's the consideration in addition to staying founders is, you know, you're giving over anything and everything you have the potential to contribute to the company. Um, your lawyers early on will tell you how that, how important that is to the investors that you were going to hopefully later attract and want to put money into the company. They're going to need to know that, that the IP has been covered um, in every way possible. Um, and then um, in, in terms of deadlocks, contributions, kind of what you're getting initially, also keep in mind that over time, um, life changes. People's roles do change. Somebody may pull back a bit. Someone may lose faith. Uh, someone's actually clearly just knocking it out of the park in their contributions. 
you may end up grossing people up over the time, over time in terms of their equity through the option plan or the equity plan or the stock plan, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, having those, con those conversations early on that those are all possibilities so that people are at least aware of it may still be a, a discussion point and a, a, a conflict, but doing that early on in terms of recognizing that things change and then making sure you have advisors who can be part of those conversations so that it helps give cover to the decision that has to be made later on if someone needs to be grossed up a few percentage points. Brian and Brett, have you ever found a, a, a tool that helps, uh, you know, really, you know, specify what the rules of the road are in terms of who gets what? I, I've heard of this um, equity, startup equity calculator called Spliquity, and uh, I, I, I don't. I, I've never used it, but I'm. I'm wondering if if there are such kinds of web engines or or studies out there. Uh, uh, my good friend Natasha Allen, uh, who's Nicole Hatcher's partner, has published a great post on splitting founder equity, which I recommend to folks. But uh, I wondered if you'd ever come across, or in in your the course you teach, you 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 uh, or in your accelerator, you've seen some sort of a a, a kind of a guide rail. I haven't. It's a com it's a very common question. Um, but I, I haven't, honestly. So, so what I did, um, and this was, you know, 2016 when I started playing with this idea and, and trying to figure out the splits. Um, I didn't find any handy tools. Maybe they weren't out there, but kind of apps or, or websites yet. But there were some great articles, great information. It's kind of how I came up. So I actually ended up, based on what I read, and I don't think there's anything original about what I did. I built a spreadsheet that allowed me to kind of plug in variables and weightings and points to founders and spit out a percentage that each should get, which there's nothing, there's a methodology, it's not a scientific methodology, um, but I, I suspect anything you can find online that does something like that is very helpful, particularly just in terms of setting the stage for the discussions that people need to have. You know, keep in mind, there's no magic answer here. This is all about human beings and their, their sense of yeah. self-worth. Yep, correct. All right, should we move okay. on to the next one? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Louie, why don't you walk us through the types of startup equity? Sure, um, I, I get this question frequently on, on what are the equity instruments that are you know, best in class and then uh, what is the latest technology? And then some founders come to me and they say, I just want the basics. You know, I don't wanna do anything funny that will, will uh, attract attention or, or be anywhere other than right in the middle of the fairway. So, um, you know, the, 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 the typical types of, of equity that we see uh, most founders will get is simple common stock that they pay for at par value, which is usually a fraction of a penny um, and, and some fraction that uh, ends up to an aggregate check of a very, very small amount. Um, some other founders um, will will not write a check, but will instead uh, contribute equity uh, in exchange for, uh, pardon me, intellectual property in exchange for their equity. Um, again, they will uh, pay some par value um, and, and then they'll get stock that typically vests over a four year period. Um, it, it, and when I say it vests, it, it means it's subject to repurchase. And what you want to make sure is that if a founder leaves before you really get off the ground, you're, you're going to have to replace that founder. And you don't want to have a big hole in your cap table uh, with somebody who has left the company uh, with a big block of, of stock. Now, you could always simply um, uh, recapitalize the company to, to fix that problem. There are many ways to fix it. Uh, but the theory is, is that there's a one-year cliff so that if anybody leaves within a year, they get nothing. And, and that's an incentive to make sure that everybody's aligned, they're all in, and that if they leave, they lose. Uh, and then after a year, they will vest on a monthly or a quarterly or annual basis uh, through a four-year period. And, and the theory there is that it's sweat equity uh, and, and it's probably it, it's going to be a controlling stake in the common in the company probably through the A round, and therefore um, it it should should reflect somebody's long term uh, contribution into the company. Now, some super founders or repeat entrepreneurs will impose a fully vested uh, equity block at day uh, upon formation and tell investors tough, you know. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm Jane uh, uh, Gorilla and uh, I've done this before and I don't need uh, to vest. So the typical middle of the fairway, common stock subject to vesting over four years. And I should also note that if somebody leaves, uh, it, is, it is incumbent upon the company to exercise the right of repurchase within some number of days. So if you, you are a founder and one of your co-founders is, is leaving, you wanna make sure you uh, follow all the procedures to get that equity back inside the company. Um, now, some super founders are going to come to me and they're going to say, Louis, um, you know, I've done this before and not only do I want fully vested stock, but, you know, I'd like to make sure that I control the company all the way through IPO and beyond. You know, when we're a hundred billion dollar company, I want to make sure that Wall Street doesn't tell me, want to tell me what to do. And so they, they want what's called super voting stock. Uh, and, and they want to make sure that even though they're going to be raising a lot of capital, whether it's safes or convertible notes or series seed and then an A round and a B round, they know they're going to get diluted below majority status pretty quickly. And so they want to have 100 or 1,000 votes per share so that everyone's very clear on who's calling the shots. Um, now, super voting stock can happen at two junctures in the life of a company. I see it happen at formation. Pretty rarely, but I, I see it um, and I, I recommend it for certain people in certain situations. Um, but I also warn people that it's a big red flag and a lot of investors will um, not like it. And it, it, it certainly um, says something about you uh, as a founder to your investor. Um, now, most other times I see it is in the period running up to an IPO where um, you know the venture capital investors are comfortable that the company is going to get out, it's going to get public, and the founder is saying, "Hey, you know, I, I I'm happy to take you all public, but you know, I don't want to be uh, thrown out by uh, some activist investors, and and I don't want the uh, long-term vision of the company to turn into a, a quarter by quarter uh, discussion of how many pennies of EBITDA that I created, and so." Um, I, I see super voting stock sometimes created right before the IPO. And so that was the case in Pure Storage and, and Snap and, and uh, uh, Facebook. It, it happened, I believe, not at formation, but at some point along the way, um, it, it wasn't at formation. So that's uh, the, the, the other variation uh, that I see is, is preferred, what we call founder preferred stock. And this is very rare, but it came up. I guess it was invented right before the last financial crisis in 2008. And the idea was that founders are putting in, um, you know, a lot of sweat and sometimes cash, which otherwise uh, gets flushed out uh, of the system when, in a, when a preferred investor comes in and says, well, that's nice, but, you know, my, my million dollars gets me 20% of the company in the first million out. Um, and so they came up with this theory of founder preferred, where there's actually a liquidation preference for the founder, which corresponds to some value that the founder has contributed with, with the founder's uh, IP, or that the sweat equity actually turns into liquidation preference uh, over time. I very rarely see the, the founder preferred instrument uh, ever used. Um, and, and I personally have never used it, although I have used the, uh, the super voting share uh, with some frequency. Um, finally, you know, when, when you're starting up a company, you're, you're going to want to create an equity incentive plan. And uh, that would be uh, uh, something that you can use to incentivize people uh, to join the team as you move along. Uh, so that, that's a stock option plan. And uh, at formation, that's going to essentially uh, uh, be priced at par value, probably. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll have to make sure that the stock that's granted uh, over time is always granted uh, by the board in a live meeting at fair market value as that is determined at the time. I've talked too much. Uh, Brett and Brian would love your perspectives on startup equity. Yeah, I, I think we could probably move, <clears throat> move on. I'll just say one thing, which is that a lot of people try to be, when they do their formation, <clears throat> excuse me, they try to do cute things with uh, super voting rights and maintaining control and stuff. My experience is when you raise your first institutional round, in other words, if you raise a round with venture capitalists, they're gonna take a look at that and they're gonna say, that's really cute, but we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so just be prepared for that. 
<laughs> all about leverage, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Just a couple of things I, I will say here is when you're in the early stage, um, often even before you've got an incentive plan in place, maybe you still have four founders who are just running hard trying to build something. When you're building a cap table, we'll talk about that a little bit, still include in there some reserve for what you think your pool is gonna be. The issuing stock around and understanding your position as a founder and your co-founders positions around the idea of what you have after the pool. And later on investors will come in and you'll, you'll start diluting even more, but kind of think about it that way. And then also know that early on, you're probably not raising funds from institutional investors, that could be friends and family, angels, the like, and maybe you're using convertible promissory notes or safes, simple agreements for future equity. Um, those typically convert to preferred stock once you have a preferred round um, and, and not common stock, but just kind of know that those are gonna be contributing to your dilution and they'll roll through the preferred stock and it'll hit your cap table. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brett. All right. Who gets what? Who gets what, Brett? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, these are all the people who, you know, who, who will typically end up getting some, some equity. Um, and as Louis said, often you're using this as, you know, as an incentive. So you, you know, you're trying to incent employees, so giving them options. You're trying to incent uh, perhaps a key partner uh, by giving them some options at equity, right? So, so I, I've seen uh, startups struggle a lot with trying to figure out what to give advisors, how much to give advisors. So it's, you know, well, it's common stock usually. Um, often there's a, you've just got the plan in place and they've been negotiating with advisors. What's a good rule of thumb for them to think about in terms of, you know, it's early stage, they've got maybe three, three founders, uh, a few key employees, uh, they're working on their MVP or they've got an MVP, you know, how, how do they approach figuring out what to give advisors? Yeah, and I'll, I'll take that and Brett jump in. Um, I, I think Founder Institute has done a really good job of, of setting this out on their website. And I think they're kind of the, the, the reference point. Um, you're gonna have a, an advisor that's gonna have a certain commitment of time and energy and network and resources to the venture. And on the high end, if somebody is a really super active advisor, maybe they get 1%. Maybe they get more than 1%, but 1% is generally the upper limit of what you would give an advisor. And if they're doing more than that, they're maybe not an advisor, they're, they're maybe part of the team and therefore you'd give them something more. Um, and then on the low end, you typically give them a quarter point. You'd vest it typically over two years and make it a single trigger change of control as an advisor is not somebody that the acquirer of this business would keep on uh, because they're just an advisor. Um, and so that's why they get single trigger and short vesting um, two years. And then, you know, if they're still part of the team and advising, you'd maybe give them a new grant uh, two or three years later. Um, typically I see it vesting monthly rather than with a one-year cliff, but I, I think uh, a cliff is always a good thing to make sure that things are working out before you've given away um, equity. So that's what I generally see with um, advisors. And then employees, there's some great studies and, and please feel free to reach out to Brian or Brett or Kate or myself uh, at any time. We've, we've got the latest and greatest uh, studies from the comp consultants about who gets, what, what employee gets what equity stake at what stage of the company by industry vertical. So there's some great studies that say if you're if you're uh, at Series B round and you're the new chief marketing officer and the company has X of revenue, you should get Y percent of, of the equity. There's, um, lots of, there's lots of stuff out there these days to refer to for benchmarking. Yeah. So I, I think we've covered this slide, Brian, unless you had something else to add. I want to add just one really quick thing, which is that uh, always make sure there's a vesting schedule. Um, that I've had the experience before of uh, somebody who said they were going to be an advisor. Like, yeah, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to make all kinds of introductions. I'm going to make this happen for you. Uh, and so I gave them some, you know, tossed them some options and then, you know, never heard from them for the next five years. Um, and then when we sold the company, suddenly they're knocking on my door saying, Hey, where's my 2%? Um, <laughs> like you didn't, you didn't do anything. Um, so make sure there's always a vesting schedule on these things and make sure that it's tied to uh, delivering some sort of value and you can terminate the agreement at any time. And if you terminate it, then they get only the amount that they're vested. 
You, you make an interesting point, um, and, and with private equity-backed companies, you see this much more than with venture-backed companies, but um, there are two types of vesting conditions that you can have. One are time-based and two are performance-based. And what's, what Brett is saying is that you should have both, uh, that over time, they actually deliver some, some clearly defined uh, things. Um, I want to make one last point that just jumped into my mind is that I often have people uh, coming in and saying, oh, I'll raise you X amount of capital uh, by, by making introductions. And I want to remind everyone that uh, nobody can get a commission uh, for uh, introducing you to money unless they are a registered broker dealer or they have a valid exemption uh, from the Securities and Exchange Commission and the FINRA. And so I, uh, be, beware of, of the people out there that say, well, if I you know, introduce you to these people, I'm, I, I want you know, X percent of the company as a commission that, that isn't legal. Now, there, there are ways to incent people to help you raise money um, that just a, a straight out commission deal for somebody who isn't registered, however, is a big no-no. And I wanna warn founders out there, you could be aiding and abetting uh, uh, the violation of a statute if you're to sign such an agreement. So. Um, you know, we lawyers are, are uh, always on the lookout for those things because that's how lawyers lose their law licenses uh, is, uh, you know, helping people violate statutes. So we, we're, we're very careful about that. Brian? I think that the, the key difference there is there's a finder and there's an advisor. And if you're a finder, you're in that murky area where you probably don't want to be. Um, advisors should have an advisor agreement. They should have a meeting schedule. Uh, I mean, most advisors, if you're not meeting monthly, you're meeting quarterly. And if they're only meeting quarterly, they're probably not as important. You're probably not giving them as much equity. Um, your advisor agreement should have real deliverables um, and a real kind of honest uh, layout of what you expect of them. And then you can put in your, your option agreement or whatever grant agreement you're giving them for equity, um, you know, termination rights and the like. Be careful about time investing your performance because it has accounting implications. But you can you can work around that. There's that's uh, it is important to be able to stop them as an advisor, terminate them as an advisor, and then terminate vesting um, early on. There was a question in here, and, and I think it relates to the next slide. So I think we can flip the slide over to option plans, uh, Brian. But there was a question in the Q and A about what do you do with LLCs and and options, and um, I, I, in LLCs I, I see restricted. Uh, membership units, uh, not options. The accounting for options in an LLC is a nightmare, and I'm I'm just not going to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, it's just a it's just a no no. Um, so people get profits interests. Uh, um, that's the the most tax efficient way of of granting incentives in an LLC. Uh, but it, today we're going to really talk about uh, C corps and, and option plans and ways to incentivize people in C corps because that's what uh, venture backed businesses are. Um, just to jump in there, though, um, so I, because I just actually had to review uh, an LLC, Delaware LLC agreement um, that had a lot of detail around an incentive plan yep. to the LLC agreement, because that's where you have to do it. Um, and if you get outside the technology space, you get into food and beverage, for example, or other areas, you start to see apparel also fashion, you start to see more LLCs. And you also still have companies that are looking for ways to recruit and incentivize employees. So there's ways to do it, but it's really complicated. You need probably a much better CPA than you would at an early stage with a startup. Yep. Uh, so just kind of keep that in mind, but, but there are ways to do it. Um, Brett, uh, you know, as, as a founder of a, of a tech company, how do you think about uh, the option pool both in terms of size and you know the components of it. Well, I think I think twenty percent is kind of the the standard Silicon Valley to carve out about about twenty percent for an option pool. Um, and yes, people ask me this all along. Oh, isn't this too much? And I say, hey, it's just it's just reserved. You don't have to use yeah, it. Exactly. Exactly. You can yeah. always give it to yourself in the form of fully vested stock if you want. So right. I always say to go big on on the option pool. Uh, so that you uh, you, you have uh, things ready to go and you don't have to do a lot of paperwork. How's it, how does the timing work then? So kind of thinking that through, um, I just saw this out for discussion, you're going to do you know, early on maybe a 10 to 20% pool. You're thinking 
maybe optimistically that a year in you're doing your Series A. Uh, and the Series A, of course, wants you to make sure you have a size enough, sizable enough pool prior to them putting their money in. Right. Uh, to diluting them after. Yeah. So is there a, a timing issue here in terms of how you think about 20% now versus 20% later? Yeah, well, I, I've certainly had, I've had exactly the experience that Brian mentioned, which is um, uh, at Series A, um, the expectation was that we were going to carve out a 20% option close because we didn't have one at that point. Um, and of course, from the investor's perspective, they want that to happen before the new money goes in, because that way we get diluted, not them. And, and you know, from the founder's perspective, you want the new money to go in and close and then carve out the 20% option plan. And that way everybody is getting diluted equally. Leverage, it's all about leverage. It's all about leverage, right? <laughs> yeah, so you know, what, what I tell founders is to go with the 20% the size at formation and that you know, if you don't use it, you can just grant it to yourself. Um, and then at, at the time of an A round, which is probably gonna be after a, a friends and family round, which would then be preceded by some sort of a business angel round, which should then be a seed round, and then, and then you get to A. So, you know, in, in, in today's day and age, Series A is like what Series C was 10 years ago, um, uh, because companies run so leanly and so long. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think the 20% is, is going to be used uh, over, over that period. I think it doesn't take a year. I think it takes more like three years to get to a Series A for most companies. Um, and, and so then at Series A, when you have a, a, a real professional venture firm, they're going to say, they're going to look at what's left in the pool and they're going to say, okay, to get to the B uh, round, which is maybe two years out, we think you're going to have a hiring plan of, of these types of executives and they're going to need this much equity. And, and so they'll tell you what they think the equity should be uh, reserved uh, and into, as Brett pointed out, the pre-money so they're not paying for it. Um, I think that it's always really important for founders to have their own hiring plans. Uh, and so they're not dictated to by, you know, folks that, that don't necessarily know. So think about, you know, what are those key hires and when you're going to make them and, and what you think you would need to give them based on the various studies um, that are out there. So that's, that's the way I think about it. Option plans are always, um, usually uh, the investors will even require this, that it have four-year vesting with a one-year cliff. Um, and uh, some really important hires will ask for double trigger acceleration so that if the company's acquired and they're fired within 12 months, they accelerate. But you don't wanna give single trigger acceleration in an, in an option plan because uh, upon acquisition, you know, everybody leaves. Uh, and, and so the acquirer is like, well, you know, uh, this is a tech company, there's got to be IP and people. And if I don't have the people, well, then what am I buying? And, and, and so single trigger acceleration should only be for advisors and maybe people like the CFO who you know would not be uh, part of the, uh, the go forward team after an acquisition. Yeah, a way, a way to think about that uh, in particular is an acquirer is going to value the company. They're going to come up with a number. And when they make that offer, that number doesn't go up because they have to come up with a whole new retention plan for the employees that are all getting single trigger acceleration. Basically, it's okay, we have to retain, incentivize and retain these employees. So out of that, let's just say it's $100 million, we're going to set aside $6 million or whatever it is. So now the purchase price it's still 100 million, but there's less for the stockholders who were holding common and preferred and as opposed to the employees who may also be stockholders, but now are cashing out at the closing. So just keep in mind that there's a, there's a purchase price. It doesn't change because the purchaser has to retain a bunch of people. Yeah, just, just for clarity for the, those who don't, uh, aren't exactly following this, the, the idea is that you, your stock options are vesting over, let's say, four years. But there's certain triggers that all of a sudden mean that because of this, you get all of your stock now. And the two triggers that are common are the company is acquired, might be one trigger, and the other trigger would be you get fired without cause. Yeah. And, and as Louis said, the double trigger means that if the company is acquired, change of control, and also you are fired without cause, then you get all your stock even though you weren't fully vested. 
So it's just, I'm just repeating this for the sake of clarity about what all this means. And uh, these can seem like pretty minor issues when it's the four of you sitting around drinking beer and talking about the company, but they can become very major issues later. Yeah. <laughs> well said, well said. Um, maybe we should uh, flip to the next slide and talk about you know ISOs and NSOs. Uh, I, I would like to make a disclaimer that I am not a tax lawyer and that uh, even among tax lawyers, there is a, a special breed of them called equity comp tax lawyers, uh, as there is just a, a deep, deep uh, uh, set of tools and uh, rules and regulations that uh, can be used in C-Corps as well as LLCs and other, other instruments. But the traditional instruments that we most of the time see in tech companies that are you know, inside the, the, the fairway of, of the golf course are ISOs, NSOs, and then restricted stock awards or units. And uh, Brian, I'm gonna leave it to you to, to do a quick overview of these, of these animals. Yeah, and, and I'd say for NSOs and ISOs, the, the main thing to know, main things to know are one, Mostly, most people are getting NSOs, non-qualified stock options, and it's really a tax difference. Um, the ISO allows you to get capital gains um, if you hold the option and the stock long enough. Um, the way, when you think about vesting, right, you get a grant, and then you get uh, vesting over time. So if you get a grant, and then maybe after your first cliff, you want to sell your stock. Uh, you have someone to buy it, or you know, if you're lucky enough, you're at a public company, um, or they've gone public. If you have an ISO and you've only held the grant, you only had the grant for one year, you vested one year, and now you're selling, it's everything's treated as ordinary income. It's um, less advantageous as opposed to capital gains. Hey, Brian, I think the next slide would be really helpful in demonstrating what you're saying. I think you should flip it. There you go. Bam. Uh, yeah, that graphic on the left, I think, is really helpful. Think about it from a holding period perspective. With an ISO, ultimately, if you sell before a two-year period, I think it's two years if I remember correctly, you're going to get ordinary income. If you have a non-qual, um, basically, when you exercise, you have ordinary income on the increase in value from the exercise price at the date you invested and exercised. But then if you hold the stock over time and it grows in value, you can sell and get capital gains. So it's really just a difference in holding periods. Most, um, most commonly, employees will vest exercise at some point in the future and sell usually around the same point in time. So the idea of an ISO is almost irrelevant because the holding periods don't match up. Sometimes with senior executives, you more commonly will see ISOs granted and people are more willing to basically hold the stock for some period of time. So um, again, NSOs are gonna be the more common venue in kind of the startup world. Um, I'm gonna go back now because I think, you know, I wanna kind of touch on the RSAs and RSUs a little bit too. So a restricted stock award, instead of giving someone a grant of an option where a, um, they vest and they want to exercise and they pay a purchase price and then they get stock. But RSA gives you stock up front. There's a deemed value to that stock, the fair market value. Um, and usually over time when you vest, you're, you're getting compensation that reflects the value of that RSA on that date and that's ordinary income. Um, and then from that period forward, if you hold the stock, You've already paid tax on what the value was when you invested. Now, if you hold the stock and it grows more in value, you get capital gains on that growth. RSUs are very similar to RSAs in the sense that they're kind of deemed at a certain value at a, on a given date. There's usually no price to be paid, um, but the RSUs do convert into stock when you choose to. It's kind of a, a similar instrument. The nice thing about RSUs is there's no voting rights. From a company's perspective, there's no voting rights, no dividend rights. RSAs typically have voting rights um, and dividend rights. And we don't mention here, there's something called a restricted stock purchase award, where it's much more like an option in the sense that the recipient still has to pay a purchase price, um, either early on or when they invest, uh, but they are getting stock um, up front, and so they do have things like voting rights and dividend rights. Uh, uh, 
So Brett, feel free to jump in, but I just wanted to, to address if you're uh, joining a team, uh, a startup team, and, and the founder stock has been doled out and you're being offered uh, some sort of a, an incentive, um, an option is if the company already has value, an option is really great because it defers the purchase that the payment of purchase price or, or exercise price until a later point of time. And it, it defers, therefore, your you know, purchase price as well as tax. Um, and if you take stock right away that has value, uh, you're, you're going to have to pay cash out of pocket tax on the value of the stock that you're granted. And, and you won't have any liquidity to sell that stock to pay the tax. And, and so while it might be cheap stock or, or not expensive and you think that there's a lot of upside in it, you might even think that the purchase price is, is low uh, compared to what you think its real value is, you will still have cash out of pocket. And so um, there's this dilemma, do I go for the option and defer any exercise price um, and also not take any risk that I lose my purchase price, or do I take the stock and really bet that it's going to go up into the right and, and pay tax now? Um, yeah. And and that is uh, like beauty in the eye of the beholder. Um, yeah. what, so everybody, what, what everybody wants is to uh, not pay anything now, not have any tax application now, but, all, but get all the upside later. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, it and it turns out you can't do that. So yeah, yeah so I think I think the the point here, Louis, uh, as you just said, is to just simply understand conceptually the issue, which it which is that um, uh, if you options are great because they don't cost you anything right now, uh, but then later on you have to exercise them, and there may be a huge tax hit later on because of that, and there are some advantages to paying a little bit for them now. Uh, as a way of mitigating the later tax hit. And then there's the 51B thing, right? Okay. You mean the 83B thing? Sorry, 83B thing. Yeah, and I was could just be, about could to- be, could you're the lawyer. Yeah, I, I'm about to make that point. So um, something that's very important for founders right away when they get stock that's subject to vesting at the outset of a company is that they file within 30 days an 83B declaration. It's a short one page document and it says uh, that this is what the purchase price is the day that I received it and I agree to recognize revenue or pardon me, income, uh, which is ordinary income on the value of the stock uh, that I get. Um, and the reason that you have to do that is that it's because it's subject to vesting. It won't become yours under the tax rules until one year later. And if you haven't filed that 83B, um, you'll, you'll have to pay tax when it vests and you'll have to figure out what the value is. I've had a, a number of very unfortunate circumstances where founders have not filed 83Bs because they didn't use counsel. And then we go to sell the company and suddenly they learn that the $50 million of uh, what they thought was capital gain going to be taxed at 20% at federal, 13% California for a total of 33% is in fact all ordinary income at the top uh, at the top level. So federal, I think that's 37% plus California 13 plus payroll tax. Yes, payroll tax, because that's deemed like salary. So you're into the 58% tax rate if you fail uh, to file that 83B filing. Now, there is no such very, very options. Very options, it's very clear. You pay the exercise price, which is the true value. And, and as long as uh, there is a board resolution that says what the fair market value of the exercise price was, when you receive the stock option, uh, you're 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 not going to be screwed like that. So, um, I'm going to shut up and, and let Brian uh, uh, flip the pages if if we need to uh, keep moving. Yeah. So one one quick thing, just think about it in terms of timing. So when you're early on, if I'm in a key employee, you know, founders are going to almost always get stock. Right. When they start off, they're going to have a stock issuance. If I'm an early employee and I'm getting two three percent maybe because I'm adding that value. And the fair market value is a penny a share. Uh, either give me an RSA, because I want stock now and I'm gonna do an A3B, and give me an option that I can exercise immediately even though it's subject to vesting. These are all kind of nuances that you can get into you know, as you are setting up your plan. And then I'll file an A3B. But um, so it, it matters less early on, as long as you have the ability to get to stock quickly, 
But as the company starts to grow in value, and of course you get up to a dollar a share or 80 cents a share, whatever it is, that stock can be really expensive. It can really have a, a tax hit. So the stock option gives you a real uh, nice uh, ability to defray costs. Um, all right, let's jump on to vesting. You know, we've covered a lot of this. Um, a, what, what else do you want to say here about vesting, guys? I, I think we've covered it. Yeah, I think it's basically around here, at least what I see is four or five years. Anything shorter is a warning sign, um, and anything longer gets you in trouble, I think, with California. It, uh, Rick Arnold just uh, uh, dropped in a question, and, and where can you find an open source good form of equity plan? And um, I think there are some great law firm websites that have open sourced their uh, equity plans, and I think CoolyGo is one, and DLA Piper Accelerate uh, is another. Um, and, and I'm sure uh, there are many other great open source form of option plans that have all the bell bells and whistles uh, embedded. All right, we'll move on. Um, cap tables. Uh, fun to build, not fun to maintain. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a new video on, on cap tables and I, I would just uh, give the short answer that uh, Carta is kind of the leading uh, uh, vendor in the space to manage cap tables. Uh, that being said, um, you know, founders trying to manage Carta all by themselves, um, you know, that, that can also be a hot mess when it comes time to a financing. So you really want to have a, a, a council team that's got a good paralegal that can help make sure that all of the um, uh, formalities are being followed. Uh, as um, Carta is a robot and uh, it, it uh, is not yet perfect uh, in, in making sure that, that you're following all the, the formalities and um, the consequences of a defective grant can be fixed, but sometimes you can't make somebody economically whole without paying them cash. So you really want to uh, use the best technology-enabled vendors like Carta. ShareWorks is another one. I'm sure there are many more. Um, but, but you want to make sure you have a good team uh, with a CPA and uh, a paralegal that can help you manage it. That was all I think I wanted to say on cap tables, Brian. And, and for, the, for those who don't know, a cap table is just simply a list of everybody who owns equity in the company and everybody who's been promised equity in the company. Um, and it's super, super important that that list be kept up to date and accurate. Right. Otherwise, and, and, it'll, it'll, bite, it'll bite you in the butt later. Yeah, and, and back to Louis' point, you know, there are these great services. Early on, if you just have a few founders, maybe you set up your plan and you've got a few grants uh, to advisors and a few employees, it's easy to maintain yourself and you don't want to, you know, you're spending your money in different ways. You're spending your money probably on development early on and that's, you know, trying to marshal your resources. But you start getting very far into safes, convertible notes, uh, more employees coming on. It gets complicated and it gets really hard to track through how those notes and safes convert out and what they do to equity. So uh, it becomes uh, you know, worthwhile to pay the monthly subscription fee to get a, a good service and also have someone either in your company or a paralegal or a law firm who will kind of keep it up to date and maintain it for you. 409A valuations, fair market value. I'll, uh, I'll take a shot at this, Brian. Um, you know, what's very important when you make an option grant is that uh, the exercise price that is stated uh, is at fair market value. Because if it's not, uh, the tax uh, authorities will uh, insert their own judgment with the benefit of hindsight in place of the board's judgment. And there can be severe tax consequences to the holders of the instruments. Now, because of that, there is a safe harbor in the tax code called Section 409A. And I'm going to, at a very high level, uh, um, describe a very complex statute. It simply says, if you get a bona fide third-party valuation of the company and the common stock, which is usually less than the preferred stock because it doesn't have a liquidation preference, et cetera, et cetera, um, you, you, and, and, if, and if that third-party valuation was given within one year, and there's no reason to disregard it, meaning you haven't sold the company at a higher price since then, um, you will be exempt from the IRS uh, uh, reviewing your judgment as to what the fair market value was. 
Um, so uh, once you're at uh, recognizing revenue um, and, and th these can be important valuation numbers that have severe consequences. So most early stage companies that are pre-revenue don't go out and get a 409i valuation from a third party because they think the risk is low. And, and, and the, the board will simply make the determination based on a series of factors. Uh, um, but as soon as you're recognizing revenue or you have any other indicia of value, you really want to get that third party valuation. Um, we, many startups now are using Carta for that as um, Carta is really trying to consolidate the, uh, the market for cap table management. And so they've now added on the service that if you use them, they'll give you a, an evaluation once a year at a, at a very discounted uh, price, at least in the early years. Um, if you work with a good law firm, they probably have a, a preferred pricing package with one vendor or another. Um, so that's something to ask uh, your your law firm and your CPA when you're interviewing them. If you're a new founder, is is you know what sort of deal do they have with Carta to get you uh, as as free a service as possible for as long as possible, and uh, when you think that they can get you evaluation. Uh, and when you'll need it, and what would it cost, et cetera, et cetera. So that's um, that's what I wanted to say about 49A. It's good for one year or until um, there is a some indicia that that the valuation that the third party came up with um, was wrong. Brian, I think that's everything on 49A. So the, the only thing I would throw out is there are some uh, useful free tools out there, including from Carta, when you're early on, and you can get a free valuation. Um, the, the problem is the minute you start raising funds through a convertible note or a safe, uh, that free valuation doesn't really work. So, you know, really early on, you can do this for free, um, and, but you probably don't need to because as Louis said, if you're, you're pre-revenue, you don't have, you know, a company um, or putting a valuation cap onto a safe or a convertible note, then the board can just make a determination. Your stock's gonna still be, you know, relatively cheap. Um, and you just dress up the minutes and consents of the board and granting options. Um, but the minute you start raising funds, um, you, just, you have to start asking yourself that question. Can I, can I still be relying on just a board determination? Yeah, somebody had a good question. Uh, what if you're pre-revenue, but you have patents? And, you know, there's a hundred different variations of this. Um, Ten years ago, I think people thought patents, uh, you know, had, had a direct correlation to valuation. And I think um, with the explosion of enterprise SaaS and trade secrets and, and code and people not wanting to write patents uh, for code that um, we no longer look at patents as an indicia of value, uh, at least as directly as we did 10 years ago. So if you're pre-revenue, I still say um, you're, you're probably a low valuation and I, I might not bother with the 409A unless I had raised uh, money from somebody who paid uh, hard cash uh, for, for shares. Yeah, should be, uh, um, so we, we, uh, we did not intend on producing a mantle for those of you who joined late. Uh, our partner, Nicole Hatcher, had a last minute emergency and couldn't join us. Um, so in the spirit of um, uh, familying our mantle, um, I'm hoping that uh, uh, my good friend Kate Mamiko can help us uh, go through the Q&A, what there is either in the chat room or the Q&A function um, for the next few minutes before we break. Kate, over to you. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Louis. So we have uh, one question in Q&A section. Um, how do you determine how many shares to authorize or issue in total? Um, great question. I think uh, there, there are, um, at least from, from a lawyer standpoint, uh, and lawyers are terrible at math, uh, so I warn you founders out there to always check your lawyer's math um, and use Excel or, or some other third party to do that. But we uh, are so bad at math that we typically think of uh, the cap table as 10 million shares or 20 million shares. And what's the difference? There isn't. Uh, it's just a, uh, because we're bad at math. And uh, we, we, so we typically authorize uh, uh, 10 million of common uh, at formation and we dole out as much of it as we want and we reserve, as Brett mentioned, 20% of that for an option plan. And then uh, we don't typically reserve um, additional shares every time we issue a safe or a convertible note. Um, we'll just have a covenant that upon conversion that we promise to authorize more shares at that time. 
and and then uh, when there's a, a series seed preferred round, then is that's the time that we'll go amend the uh, the charter and authorize different series of of shares and redo the cap table so that everybody's got the right um, percentage. I don't know, Brett or Brian, if you had a different experience or perspective uh, being founders. Uh, we got ten. Is it is it arbitrary number? Yeah, I, I would say that there is um, there is a, a an impact on franchise tax. Um, there are, there are some states that that uh, and and we always recommend Delaware. Uh, and Delaware has two methods of calculating uh, franchise tax, which is the tax you pay to the state just to be incorporated there. And one one version is based on the number of shares authorized. So some people will say, "Oh my God, don't authorize 10 million because you'll have all these franchise taxes to pay." And it it isn't true because there is a second test, uh, which uh, allows you to uh, pay the minimum uh, in, 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 as long as you know your pre-revenue and your asset base is uh, is low and you haven't raised money. Um, so therefore, I don't think it it matters. And I always go with myself 10 million. Um, do, do we have other questions, uh, Kate, that we should hit? Uh, one more question we have is uh, this. Could you please go over corporate governance structure, meaning if the CEO and the CEO can't come to an agreement on a product or engineering decision, uh, who should have the ability to make final decision for the company? Is it ever okay for the CEO to tell the CEO to butt off any product or engineering decision? <laughs> Red, I'm gonna let you take that one. <laughs> Yeah, well, having um, having worked with a few CTOs, I can tell you that um, uh, CTOs just do whatever they want to do. That's what CTOs do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's a it's a it's a great question, um, and uh, I don't know, uh, Louis and Brian, whether uh, so you know, typical structure is that the board with the board, the board hires and fires the CEO, and the CEO hires and fires everybody under him. So kind of in the default corporate structure, um, if the CEO is not happy with the CTO's performance, he can be terminated. Uh, but it sounds as if this question is kind of, if you're the founding CTO, is there a way to you know, protect yourself so that you can do whatever you wanna do and not have to listen to the CEO? <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would add that in my experience, um, there are two types of founders. One is it's he, he, she or he is an extremely technical person and they've just graduated with a PhD from Stanford or Berkeley or some great school. And, and they think of themselves as having invented the product and the idea, and they think of themselves as the majority owner. Um, but they don't think that being a CEO is really in their skill set. So they meet somebody and in, in through their, uh, their network uh, who becomes the CEO. And, and there the power dynamic um, might be more skewed towards the CTO. And then there are some other companies where the, the, the technical founder is also the CEO. And then the technical founder brings in a, a CTO uh, to help execute. And in that sense, I think the CTO um, probably has less leverage to kind of be the, the final say as to the direction uh, of the company. So again, I think there are some CTO-led founder teams and, and some CEO-led founder teams. Uh, and it goes back to you know, who's got a majority of the stock. But a, a very interesting question. Um, Kate, are there other questions in the, um, in the chat room that we, we might wanna hit? Um, I see that somebody's asked for a free source for compensation guidance. And um, yeah, there are a number of us who uh, subscribe and, and provide anonymized data to um, comp firms. And as a result, they share with us the aggregated data, but uh, under a license that says we can't you know, blast it out because it's theirs. So um, your, your attorney that you're working with should have access to that and they should have the ability to you know, share with you the, the, the specific data points that are relevant to you, but they can't give you the whole phone book of, um, of the study uh, without violating um, the license. Um, I'm looking through the questions. Um, Kate, are there other ones that are worth um, addressing? Okay, we just got another one from Andrew. Uh, I started an LLC, did a convertible note of 150K and issued to myself 800,000 units of uh, 1 million authorized. 
pre-revenue at this time. What are my uh, 83B filing requirements? And more importantly, what are my tax implications, if any? Should I sell any of those units to another individual? Um, so I don't want to get too deep into the tax rabbit hole, but if uh, you paid full purchase price for those units and they weren't subject to vesting, uh, you didn't need an 83B and you're, you're clear and you're good. If, the, if those units were subject to vesting and you didn't file an 83B, then, then you want to file an 83B as soon as you can with, with uh, some third party valuation to back it up so that you have a stake in the ground from the moment you file the 83B as to what the value of the stock was that you got without, uh, that was subject to vesting. Um, so that's, that's one way of fixing a, a failure to file an 83B. There are many different ways to, to re repair uh, a failure to file an 83B that I don't wanna go over in this call because it's too technical. Uh, and we'll lose people, but you know, please feel free to reach out uh, to any of us after the call and we'll be happy to uh, steer you in the right direction. Looks like this is it. Everyone, thank you so much for joining. Uh, Brian, if you wanna flip the next slide, we're gonna get together next week and then we're gonna talk about what happens if everything goes sideways. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if it's COVID or these fires in Silicon Valley, but uh, I've been seeing a, a whole lot of uh, founder divorces uh, or what I'll call uh, uh, venture firms wanting to replace management teams. And, and so we have to look at what happens to the founder equity. And I think it's going to be a really fun show next week. Same place, same time, uh, same folks. And maybe, maybe we'll have a few more. Uh, hopefully we won't mantle it next time accidentally. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get some more folks uh, 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 involved. And thanks to everyone for joining. We will circulate these slides. Uh, there will be a recording of the webinar that you can share with your friends or post uh, in the next day or so on, on the YouTube channel, Ask a Silicon Valley Lawyer. Brian, Brett. Right. Thanks, everyone. Terrific. Thanks, Louis, for, for the invitation, and thanks to all who attended. This has been fun. Hey, I want to say thanks to Kate for all the, the, the legwork that goes into producing these. She does a great job. Thank you, Kate. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.